0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. That's the first passage that we're going to be looking at tonight as we begin our study. Um, I will just repeat what's already been said. We are so happy to have you with us. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you're an honored guest. Uh, I, I don't know what it is about me and Paige, but somehow we just attract all of the family from all all around, and so uh, we, we, you had the Hawk family with us earlier this morning, now you have the Bronger side, and uh, I literally had no idea that they were going to be here until I heard JR's very distinct voice in the foyer, so uh, I, I won't say that I get nervous whenever I have to preach in front of them, I, 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 at least I don't think I usually do, but just for, I'm, I'm still kind of shocked about it, so if... If I stutter a lot, we'll just blame it on that and not uh, just the inadequacies of, of the speaker. So uh, it is really good to have them here. It was a really, really pleasant surprise. I can't tell you how much I I really do love uh, JR and Sue. They've always been uh, people who you don't have to just marry into their family to feel like a part of family. They make you feel welcome. And so uh, I've, I've felt that for a long time, even before uh, Paige and I got married. and so. I just appreciate them and their work in the kingdom, uh, and so all that being said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter nine if you haven't already, we are going to be focusing very much in these few chapters here of um, beginning in Exodus chapter seven all the way through chapter twelve uh predominantly um, what I want to do is just continue on in our series that we started not too long ago of that narrative series where we go through at least one lesson, uh, uh, at least one study in each book of the Bible and try to go in somewhat uh, a good order. And we've Already gone through a couple lessons in the book of Genesis. We've come to Exodus. We've really focused on that story of Moses and the burning bush. Just skipping ahead, not very far, but just at the start of the ten plagues. I think that there are so many applications for us to take from just the ten plagues alone. Um, there now, I will say there are a few chapters that we need to go over. Um, and and so that kind of makes it a little bit harder to you know slow down as much as you want to get every detail but we're not going to be focusing on just every single thing that you could look at throughout this story what I want to do is is a little bit different from what I usually do with a textual study I usually like to read through a text uh, verse by verse and make application as we go Uh, and I don't we're not going to abandon that completely but I really want to save most of the application for at the very end of the study Because I I think it helps to think about the lessons we're supposed to take from this when you have the whole story in your mind. Uh, And so what I want to do is just start out by looking at the ten plagues as they come, in the order that they come, looking at Pharaoh's response, looking at the response of all of Egypt for that matter, um, and then just seeing some of the, the... the statements that are made within that time frame, the judgments that God is bringing against Egypt to let his people, Israel, go. And the reason I want to do that is because, again, I think that when you have the whole story in your mind, it helps you uh, get to the conclusions that God wants you to get to, like we were talking about this morning, when you have all of the knowledge. But also, I just think it makes the... I'm a very I'm a very strong advocate of trying to picture the stories in the Bible in our minds as best as possible. I, I, I think it's easier when you get to a story like Jesus walking on the water or Jesus calming the storm while in the boat. Those are pretty easy to picture, at least uh, at least if you've lived in the south for any length of time and you see the full force of a Mississippi storm, they really begin to come alive when you read through those kind of passages. It's a little bit harder when you look throughout the plagues because these are all miracles. And these are things that God is doing, powerful miracles that God is performing to make uh, a point to his people, to make a point to the Egyptians, and really to make a point to the entire world. As you see in Exodus chapter 9 in verse 14, this is really the main point that I want to focus on. As you see, we'll, we'll come back to this later on in the study. But in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 9, It says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Now, Again, we'll come back to that uh, passage later on in the study, especially when you look at the application uh, that I think you can take from these 10 plagues. But the main focus of of tonight's study is just the fact that God wins. (laughs) And as you look throughout all of these plagues, it is clear that God is utterly victorious. And, and so, uh, I just want to make that point over and over again. It doesn't matter the opponent. It doesn't matter the enemy. It doesn't matter against what kind of odds. What odds are there against the Creator, against the I Am that Moses has already proclaimed to the people of Israel, this is the God who sent me. And so, I, I just want to look at this, uh, specifically focusing on that point as we go throughout these few chapters here, looking at the ten plagues, uh, and, and then make some application about that at the very end of the study. So, as we look at this story in, in motion, there are just four different groups of people that I want to mainly focus on in looking at their responses and looking at how they how they react to all of these amazing things that God is doing, these judgments. And I want to see if there's any notion throughout this story that God seems to be, whether it be failing outright or whether it just be kind of struggling with, with you know, gaining this victory, attaining this victory. I want to just see really more so how utterly inadequate and unequipped the enemies of God are when they are trying to oppose his will, when they're trying to oppose his people. And first of, all, first of all, you just start with the magicians. Over in Exodus chapter 7, at the very beginning, right before you see that first plague of the, the Nile being turned to blood and the water of Egypt being turned to blood... Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7, it says Moses was, or or sorry, in verse 9, not verse 7. When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers. And they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down a staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now from the very beginning, these, this group of people, the magicians, they're going to play a part throughout this story. Uh, but especially at the beginning, they're most, they're most active And even before you have these plagues, these judgments coming before Egypt, coming to Egypt to let God's people go, the magicians are visibly outmatched. Now, whether or not this is real sorcery or just simple tricks, I, I I tend to lean towards the latter. But either way, regardless, even if this is some kind of supernatural power that the magicians are able to accomplish, what's the result? Oh, well, the magicians won. No, they didn't. Their staff, their serpents were eaten up, were swallowed up by God's chosen uh, leader, by by uh, by His staff. And so, uh, even from the beginning, before you even get to the plagues, what you find is God is still winning. Uh, now, all the while, you're going to see these these judgments. You're going to see God's victory become even more apparent because the plagues just get more severe. But I just I just like starting from the very beginning, seeing that it's not like. There's, there's ever any doubt. It's not like there's any indication at any period that, well, God's just not going to be, is God going to be able to pull through here? No. It's pretty clear even from the very outset. So from the beginning, God is, is already off to a good start. Well, you move on past that in verses 20 through 24. He, he God sends the first plague, turning the Nile into blood. And then we come to verse 20 of Exodus chapter 7. And it says, So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile and the blood was through all the land of Egypt but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this so all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink of the water of the Nile now I will just say from the very beginning before we move on any further even even uh, in looking at how the magicians tried to mimic what God had done Um, all of this is what God had said is going to happen, that Pharaoh would harden his heart and that he wouldn't let it go even if he saw such an amazing miracle take place. So just in the fact that what God said is still happening, even that's an indication that he is still uh, very much in control, that his victory is still very much pending. Well, but just focusing specifically on the magicians, God has turned the water into blood. And what you're going to find with the magicians especially is that Every time God does something or sends a judgment, they are completely powerless to undo it. Now, no matter what the magicians actually accomplish, they cannot undo what God does. And you see that especially in the, in the next couple of plagues, in the plague of the, of the frogs, but just notice that even from the beginning, they can't undo what God has done, what, what, what he has accomplished. So you move on past that into chapter 8. God warns Pharaoh to let his people go. He warns that, that Israel, his people, is to be let go to worship him and to do as, as, as he has commanded. Or he's going to send the second plague of the frogs. And so in verse 6, picking up of Exodus chapter 8... In verse 6, beginning, it says, So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now again, a couple of things. One, the magicians, they... I'm not exactly sure what their goal here was. We have to somehow show that we are at least on par or maybe better than God. So what are we going to do? We're going to add to the problem. So, so our issue is we have a plague of frogs, and, and what I'm going to do is just make more. You see how counterproductive that is? You see how counterproductive Satan's tactics often are, are or can be? And so just within that, it's just, it just shows their, it shows their stupidity to a degree. But going past that, not just the fact that they are adding to the problem, making things worse for themselves. Notice, who does Pharaoh entreat to take the frogs away? Who's the first person? Who's the only person he goes to? It doesn't say he goes to his magicians, his oh-so-trusted soothsayer priests. No, he goes to Moses and he says, please entreat the Lord, let him take this plague away. And it is only then that the plague would be taken away is by God's will being appealed to. And after the fact, it's interesting that that he is even, he's even given the choice of what day are the frogs going to be taken away. Moses says, just just tell me what the day. Now make sure that you learn from this. Make sure that you do what God is telling you to do once this is taken away, but you tell me the day. And he, and he gives him a day, and what happens but exactly what Moses, what God's chosen leader has said will happen. And so the frogs are taken away. Well... Going beyond that, he is uh, warned again, or or rather, after he's chosen the day for the frogs to disappear, it does happen. Pharaoh doesn't do what he said he would do. He sins by by lying. He sins by going against God even further. And then picking up in uh, verse 16 of Acts chapter 8, verse 16 of Acts chapter 8, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, Here's a few, just a few instances, we're going to come back to the magicians in just a moment, but here's several instances from the very outset where they just are utterly inadequate to alleviate the pain, to alleviate the suffering and the affliction, to alleviate the judgment that is deserved upon them. And they are so utterly inadequate to, to even try, the, the, the more severe it gets, the more incredible and marvelous it gets. Well, we can't do that. And so I just think it's so interesting. I think it's emphatic, the incapability of just man to try and reach that level of God, reach that same level, whether it be of power or of wisdom. And already by the third plague, there are 10, you know that. But by the third plague, the magicians acknowledge their inferiority to God. They acknowledge the only person that could do something like this is God not no man could do this no man could mimic this and i sometimes wonder if that's just maybe maybe a way for them, an excuse that they can give to pharaoh so that way they're not put to death by by failing him um and so but regardless that's the confession that they give well you go past that they're warned again and and after he's been warned as he constantly is with each uh uh, with, with each moment as he is, uh, interacts with Moses, he's warned to let the people go or there will be another plague and more severe. And so this plague of the flies, uh, it is uh, said that it will come And in verse 21 of chapter 8. It says, For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you, and on your servants, and on your people, and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies flies in all the land of Egypt. Now, you see on the screen there just the word isolated when it comes to just the entirety of Egypt, the people of Egypt, the population. What I mean by that is here God is making a very clear distinction. And what is that distinction? He's saying that here are a group of people that are mine, that are my people, my chosen nation, my kingdom. And here is another kingdom that is basically defined as opposing God, an enemy of God, an enemy of, the, of that people. Now, beyond that, what is the distinction? God's people will be blessed. And God's enemies will be laid waste. God's God's enemies will not be blessed. But rather, instead of being exalted, they will be abased. And you see that time and time again throughout the ten plagues. I, I, I said at the beginning, uh, we won't be making as many applications. Hopefully, we'll still be making applications as we go through each point. Uh, but But that is one of the applications you see. That it is God's people who will be blessed and the enemies of the Lord that will be cursed. And you see this several times throughout the ten plagues. That God says that God makes my people especially in the ninth plague of darkness who's the only people that have light well it's God's people of course uh which kind of gives a new meaning to a city set on a hill (laughs) Uh, you know people being light bearers in a world of darkness well going beyond that in chapter nine Pharaoh lies again which is pretty consistent with his character at this point and as he lies, God warns of the, uh, a pestilence that would come, of the livestock that would kill off the livestock of Egypt. In verse 4 of chapter 9, it says the Lord will make a distinction yet again. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. I would just say as kind of a caveat to this, you know, a lot of times people will, will say, well, if God just, if God just came down, if, he just, if, he would, if, if Jesus would just show himself, well, then I would believe. Honestly, I, I, think that is, I think that's usually a dishonest claim, because what we find throughout history is that God did show himself in a very real way, In a very powerful way. And yet, not even that was enough. And I think you even see that in the parable of of, of Lazarus and the rich man. That just because because, uh, one would rise from the dead and warn your brethren, that does not mean that they would believe him. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. It really comes down to are you going to be a Pharaoh or are you going to be like Moses and Aaron? Are you going to be the ones that follow God? And all the while you see over and over again that it says something along, along the lines of they did as God had commanded. Or they did what God said. Or they said the, the words that God gave them. Whereas Pharaoh continually hardening his heart, making promises that probably doesn't intend to keep, never does end up keeping them. Who do we want to be defined as? Which group do we want to be defined as? Uh, because it's clear as we move forward, and as you see just in each phase of these 10 plagues, it's clear who is losing all the while. well. Once again, uh, you, you see that distinction made, as we already read in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 9. It's, it's, the, it's the nomads, it's the slaves that are exalted above the powerful nation, the, the slave owners, the, the harsh slave owners, who should have all of the power and all of the say and all of the, uh, all of the authority to do whatever they please without any repercussion. Well, here... Usually, that would be the case, but here you have an all-powerful God who says, well, this is my people, and you don't get to just do that, um, specifically when talking about that that nation that would even wander in the wilderness. Now, moving past that, still in chapter 9, but coming back to the physicians, Pharaoh hardens his heart once more, so God sends, uh, beyond just the, the pestilence of the livestock, he sends boils that would hit... Uh, everything within Egypt. In verse 10, beginning of chapter 9, it says, So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it toward the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, why is this so important? Because I think what you've seen is... uh, a progression in just the utter defeat of this group of people, the magicians in Egypt. Uh, as you see, they start, they clearly do still start at a disadvantage because what advantage are you going to have against an all-powerful God as, as the, their serpents are eaten up and swallowed up by the one that God miraculously gives. But then all the while, it just gets worse and worse and worse to the point where there is no question they are defeated To a degree, they are bowing down to the Lord because they cannot stand before his chosen leader, his chosen deliverer of Israel, of his people. And so they couldn't even stand before uh, that that judgment. So the magicians really kind of get out of the picture from here on out, and we focus more on the servants, we focus more on Pharaoh, we focus more on all of the people of Egypt. And so as is consistent with God's character, he warns Pharaoh. Of yet another plague that is going to come. And all the while, just think why does God warn that something is going to happen? Why did He warn so often with so many prophets, Israel uh, or through Israel's history, that Babylon was coming, that, that Assyria was coming, that Nineveh was coming? Ultimately, so that one would turn. So just think about that as we continue to go through the rest of these plagues. God warns yet again, and he warns of the hail that would come in verse 18 of chapter 9, beginning. It says, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the, Lord, the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But there's another side of that in in verse 21. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Well, what you find is here, there's still some of the servants that are not going to heed the word of the Lord. There are some servants that are still not fully on board yet. They will be, trust me. But already what you're seeing is at least a, a, a percentage of them saying, Maybe, just maybe, we should heed the warning that God has given us. Maybe we should follow some of the instruction that we've been given uh, through, through Moses and through Aaron. And it's the ones that actually did heed the word of the Lord that were spared at least to a little degree. Now, ultimately, they are going to suffer the consequences of such a stubborn and, and stone-hearted, stiff-necked leader, Pharaoh. But to some degree... Uh, I think it's interesting that God uh, does, does spare to at least a little bit, uh, to one degree, some of the people of Egypt, should they actually heed some of the warning that he has given them and heed the instruction. Well, God sends the storm, he sends the hail, the likes of which it says Egypt had never seen before. Yet, Israel was safe. Egypt, had, they are getting demolished over here. But Goshen, which is really not that far off, untouched. I'm sure that that's just a coincidence. I'm sure that that just, you know, I'm I'm sure that there's nothing miraculous about that, nothing, you know, divine about that. But though Egypt was devastated, Pharaoh lies again and he keeps Israel enslaved. So God says at the very beginning of chapter 10 and verse 1, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery. Of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. It is interesting how many times God will say that all throughout the ten plagues. This idea of that that Egypt will know, that the world may know, that you may know that I am the Lord, that I am the I am, and that's a that should be at least a very powerful message. But as we looked at when we looked at uh, chapters three and four of Exodus, when when God comes to comes to Moses and He gives him His name. The I am. One of the implications that we talked about as we were going through that study is the fact that if he is the I am, what that does is put all other gods to shame. Because no other god, no other being could make that kind of a claim. You know, when did you begin? When did you originate? I just am. There is no other idol. There is no other wooden vessel or stone vessel that it ultimately is, is nothing, not even really in existence, has no consciousness. There is no idol and no God, little g, that can make that same claim that Jehovah God can make. And so all throughout I think that there's, there's a constant reminder, not just for Egypt, but also for Israel, that they can look at these things, they can look at all of these plagues, and they can say, He is the I Am. And, and we'll look at this more in just a moment, but the fact that they can forget that so quickly when they get into the wilderness... That this is the God who, who put to shame all of these other gods that we've really been enslaved under, at least under the mindset of, and how quickly they can get away from that. Well, going beyond that, in verse 7 of chapter 10, God warns of the locusts that are going to come to really ultimately take what's not been destroyed. So the hail destroyed a lot of stuff, but what's left, God says, oh, I'll take care of that too. In verse 7 of chapter 10, Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? And it, I mean, it's, it is somewhat humorous, but it's, it's really more so depressing because you have a man that is so, so stubborn and so hateful and bitter against God that he will look at what is clear right before him and he still rejects it and he is so dishonest with himself that he says, I think I'm, I think I'm weathering this pretty well. I think I'm weathering the storm pretty well, faring pretty well. It doesn't look like anybody else at this point feels the same. Even his own servants are saying, they're admitting God's power, and they're saying, you are going to kill us. Let them go. But Pharaoh, being the kind of man he is, he's just not willing to let them go. The servants had to beg their leader, their their, their king, to submit to a greater king. And even there, what you find is, I think, uh, another one of these groups in Egypt Essentially bowing down to the Lord because they're acknowledging, or at the very least, they're bowing to the notion. They're they're acknowledging the fact that God is who he says he is, that he has all of that power and that he is greater and that he has made a mockery of all these idols, Um, at least to some degree. Now, whatever Pharaoh thought, I don't know exactly what he thought. If he thought he was faring it well, do you think anyone else did? Hey, Pharaoh, hang in there. I think you're going to get there. No, really it seems like the confidence is waning until really it's just completely gone. And all that's there is is the sorrow that the ultimate destruction will bring. Well, what's so, it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, but what's so depressing is the fact that Pharaoh rejects yet again. uh, And he rejects to such a degree that he's going to have to eat his words. In, In verse 16 of chapter 10, verse 16 after God has sent yet another plague and done exactly what he says he's going to do. The locusts come and they destroy. In verse 16 of chapter 10, it says, Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and he said, I have sinned, he admits, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. So here is the king of Egypt. And, and really, this isn't the first time he said something like this. But it is very clear when he says, I've sinned against, not just that I've sinned, but I've sinned against the Lord, that I am, the Jehovah God that we've been talking about. He admits this. And what's amazing is that he can say something like this so many times, and yet as soon as the, the, the suffering is taken away, as soon as the affliction is away, taken away, he just hardens his heart, and he just turns around, and he rejects again, yet again, the instruction, the warning that God has given him. It's not like he doesn't have a a history at this point of maybe, maybe, maybe I really need to start listening up. Maybe I really need to start paying attention. No, he just continues to become more stubborn. Um, And so Pharaoh himself even recognizes and confesses out loud that he has sinned. Um, And I would just add to that before we move on. Does it sound like Pharaoh at this point, it sounds that confident? in his words against God, when he is in the middle of the persecution, when he's in the middle of the affliction, the judgment, he's never that confident. It's only after the, the, the consequences have been taken away. That's, that's when he can really, you know, that's when he can really act all big and bad when really he's just a weak, he's just a weak man. He is but dust and ashes trying to stand before an all-powerful God and trying to trying to move against him. It really puts into perspective when you read Psalm 2 and you have that imagery of the nations trying to oppose God and what does it say? God laughs. Not, not, be, not, be, not, not in like a, a way where, you know, someone's being a jerk to you and they're just laughing at you. No, it's laughable when completely impotent men in the face of God think that they can move against him. It's laughable. And, and I think all throughout these 10 plagues you just hear the proverbial laughter of God from, the very, from his very throne. Well, moving on uh, in chapter 10, in verse 21, Pharaoh again rejects. He goes back on his word. So God says in verse 21 of chapter 10, Stretch out your hand toward the sky and that that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel, they had light in their dwellings. Now, Pharaoh is going to call, obviously, to, to Moses and ask that this also be taken away, that he is just like he has, that he has sinned against God. But just once more you see the distinction made. His people have light while the rest of, while the enemies of God simply do not. And I love the way it describes it. It's a darkness that could be felt. That when we're reading through these plagues, these aren't just metaphorical. These are real plagues. These are miracles that God sent against his enemies To Make a point. It was a darkness that could be felt. Can you imagine how disorienting that would be? Can you imagine how much more disorienting it would be to have the full wrath of God directed at you? Not just a fraction, not just one plague, but all the plagues that are written in this book. So think about that as we continue on whether or not we want to be like Pharaoh or like Moses and Aaron. Well, moving on into chapter 11, very quickly beginning in verse one, Pharaoh rejects yet again all of God's terms After Pharaoh has said, well, you can do whatever you want, ultimately he says, never mind. I don't care what I've said. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to do what you want to do to Moses. He even kind of threatens Moses to a degree, uh, saying, you're never going to see my face again. Moses (laughs) takes that so gracefully and says, hey, you're absolutely right. And in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. Very confident the Lord is. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man asked from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So here's just a direct statement where it says, All of Egypt looked at God's people and looked at Israel and Moses appropriately. They got the message way before Pharaoh did, or at least they received it much more uh, appropriately than Pharaoh did. This is the way that you were to receive. This is the way that you were to interact with God's chosen people, with God's people that he says that he would bless. Well, moving past that in chapter 12, God gives uh, Israel instructions on the Passover as they're preparing for that 10th plague. They obey, and because of that obedience, because of that faithfulness, they are, are, uh, they're passed over obviously uh, hence the term Uh, that judgment does not come upon Israel but it comes upon Egypt in verse 28 of Exodus chapter 10 verse 28 of Exodus chapter 10 it says then the sons of Israel went and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron so they did now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Now listen to this added part in verse 32. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. So not only do you have Pharaoh himself, he relents finally, and he says, "You, you get to do everything that you asked. He even asks for a blessing. Does that sound like he fared well? No, that sounds like utter defeat. That sounds like like the conclusion of the matter when you oppose God. At least that should be the lesson we learn here. Finally, Pharaoh relents. And it could have ended there. It doesn't, ultimately, because he decides he wants to go further in his rebellion against God. But also, just know, all of God's conditions that he was talking about from the very beginning, you know how Pharaoh's been kind of, he's been trying to negotiate with Moses and Aaron and say, well, okay, you can do this, but not this. And what, what do they say? No, 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 What has God said? All of those conditions are met. And here Pharaoh does not get to say, he doesn't even try to say anymore, well, let's reason together. No, 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 no. He completely relents. And what God has said from the very beginning occurs. That sh- no compromise is made when you're talking to the king of everything. And that should be so encouraging to us as we go throughout this story and see that kind of king, that kind of victorious king. Well, you move beyond that finally in verse uh, 35 of chapter 12, and it says, Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, as we read earlier, so that they may let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. I I am sorry, but not sorry. But does this sound like there was any part of the story where God was losing? No, it's an overwhelming victory. Now, the reason that I keep going through this is because that this should be the feeling that we get when we think about the assurance of pledging ourselves to the king today. This level of victory while it may not look as marvelous, while it may not look as grand as the ten plagues or the crossing of the Red Sea, guess what? When you're baptized, you should have that same level of confidence, that same level of assurance, that same level of victory in Christ. Victory in Jesus. That's actually one of J.R.'s favorite hymns. It actually is his favorite hymn. And I love that notion because it's the victory of the king that I get to share when I pledge myself to him, when I decide that the old man is going to be put away and I am only going to obey this king. Because that's what matters most. We should have the same feelings, the same emotions that I can only imagine the people of Israel had when they saw, "Wow, what a blowout!" And so, that, that we should really, we should really focus on that kind of uh, victory and make sure we realize what uh, what victory we have in our own lives. Well, just two things I want to focus on in terms of application, and they're both lessons about. Really, God and his people. The first being a lesson of God's mercy. God, if you go all the way back to chapter 7, he did not start with the fire and brimstone. How did he start? Remember what we read in verses 9 through 12 of Exodus chapter 7? Rather, instead of the hail and the fire and the thunder and all of these devastating plagues, he starts with a simple miracle of turning a staff into a serpent. And what was that supposed to do? We didn't read verse 13, but let's read it now with that in mind and the context in mind. It says, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, what does that mean that he did not listen to them? What was it that they came to tell Pharaoh? Do this. Do what God has said. He wants his people and you better you better listen. Otherwise, you're going against the creator and you're going against a God who's capable of bringing all of this kind of destruction and and ultimate defeat to you. From the beginning, God gave his conditions, he gave his terms, and Pharaoh could, he could have obeyed, but he didn't. Not only that, but you see a continual effort a continual effort that, of, of, of what I think uh, over and over again throughout the plagues as he's warning. The fact that he even gets a warning of the plagues. No, Pharaoh is stiff-necked and he is so stubborn that he, he rejects everything God says. And he doesn't care about God. He even goes so far to say, who is God that I should serve him, that I should obey him? That, that kind of, in my mind, he does not deserve any warning. But God says differently, interestingly enough. He says, No. Oh, I'm going to tell you what's coming. And I'm telling you this because you have a choice. Whoever looks at this kind of passage and says over and over again, and so emphatically, no, we have no choice to make. There is no choice that we can make. God forces us to make a choice. That's not what the language indicates. It says he was warned. Why are you warned? So that maybe you'll turn. Just like we said about Israel with all the prophets throughout their history. Why is it that God consistently says, gives the demands, let this happen or else? Those conditions are put there because... Pharaoh had a choice. And that really makes this story all the more depressing and all the more sorrowful because he could have made a different choice. And that's really uh, one of the main points I, I think we can take from Pharaoh's rebellion is that it did not have to end like this. He could have glorified God. Can you imagine how else he could have glorified God? Maybe simply by acknowledging from the beginning he is Jehovah. And I will let the people go and i just ask just like he does at the end in utter defeat he could have submitted and said please bless me as you go <laughs> but he didn't did he i think it's kind of the same way that paul talks to the uh, to, about the jews in romans all throughout Jewmans, uh, all throughout romans rather is that you know there were faithful people in israel and and Unfortunately, the majority of Israel were not those faithful people like like Simeon in the temple and Anna in the temple. Rather, they were unfaithful. They didn't care. They're the ones that actually put Christ on the cross. But did it have to look that way? Absolutely not. In fact, it makes it, yet again, more sorrowful because they didn't have to look like that. They could have submitted themselves to God, and he could have brought that victory, but they chose to put themselves against God. And therefore, the judgment that comes, as Paul says, is 100% deserved. Well, going beyond that, going beyond just God's mercy, and it is interesting how you see God's mercy tied into the judgments of God throughout all the stories of the Bible. But finally, you also see a lesson for Israel. First of all, we're not going to read all these passages, but in Psalm 135 and verses 8 through 18, what you find is that the psalmist is just remembering the victory that God brought them in Egypt. Now, this is centuries after the fact. And yet they're still talking about that. Well, for one reason, as, as we were reading earlier this morning in De- Deuteronomy chapter 6, it was something they were never supposed to forget. God says over and over again, don't forget these things. Don't forget the victory that I brought you. And why is that? Because as soon as you forget, you're going to go away from me. As soon as you forget, you're going to become complacent. As soon as you forget, you're going be- to think that you're the one that got yourself here. No, it was always me. Is there an application for us there? Absolutely. Just because... I am a part of God's kingdom. Just because I am a part of the church, just because I'm a member at Lakeside, does that mean that I automatically am, and get a free ride, that I'm safe from here on out? I don't have to think at all? No. What it means is now you have a greater responsibility. Now it means you remember that victory that God gave you. You remember the victory that Christ gave you when you were baptized into his death the rise in newness of life, in his life. And as soon as you start forgetting that, you're going you're to fall, fall away. You're going to drift away, as the Hebrew writer suggests. Well, going beyond that, not only was it, was it a victory that they were supposed to remember to bring them confidence to be a boon in times of, of struggle, but it also acted as a warning ultimately against God's enemies, against all of God's enemies. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 15, beginning it says, The Lord will remove from you all sickness and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on, on all who hate you. Now remember, Deuteronomy is specifically, I think, Moses is just re- reminding them of all of these things. Remember, remember how you're to act and remember not to forget the things that God has done for you. And then moving on to verse 16, you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now he starts, even from the beginning of Deuteronomy, saying, this is the kind of, this is the kind of conclusion of the matter when it comes to God's opponents, God's enemies. Now, this language turns out, unfortunately, to be used against Israel as well. And you see this a couple of times. For example, in Amos, Amos chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your younger men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Just emphasizing the fact that even in a plague, even in the judgment that God sends, He's trying to bring these people back. And he's trying to get people to understand what they need to do. Now, finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 60... Deuteronomy 28, well, beginning in verse 58, it says, If you are not careful to observe all the words of the law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Yes, indeed, this language is used for God's enemies. And even Israel would end up being one of those enemies. Even we today, though we are a part of God's chosen people, that kingdom, that royal priesthood, we can fall astray. We can start working for the domain of darkness, which we were delivered from. So we have to be so very careful that we don't follow this pattern of Israel as you look throughout their history, even though they had such an awesome revelation. Don't we have an even more glorious one Because while they had Moses, the law, and the prophets, we have Jesus, which all of that was pointing to. So how much worse the judgment will be should we think that because I'm a part of this kingdom, I get to just walk away and I get to do whatever I want. No. We have to stay faithful. We have to remain faithful. Remain obedient to the king. So that way we can continue to be a part of that kingdom, continue to be a part of that victory, and have that ultimate hope of the final victory. That Jesus will have over death. Well, why does any of this matter? Why is it important to understand this kind of story? I know that this is one that we're all familiar with. It's one that we grow up with, especially as kids. We go through these things over and over again. I think that sometimes that that appreciation, that excitement can be lost. That's why I really wanted to focus on these plagues and see just how emphatic God's victory is. Well, there's a few reasons why this is so important because God, first of all, has come to us with demands. He has come to us with demands and conditions, yet not ones that end with our destruction, with our ultimate destruction rather, which would be justified in the same way as it would be justified with Egypt. But secondly, why does this matter? Because this story culminates and is realized even more beautifully in Jesus God has shown us his victory, his final, ultimate victory through the servant that he has sent to deliver his people from bondage. And what does that bondage really look like? Sin. Are you a slave of sin? Will you reject God's conditions like Pharaoh and keep resisting until destruction finally engulfs you? Or will you look more like Moses and Aaron who did all the while as God commanded them and were faithful to the king? If you are subject to the invitation of Christ, if we can help you in any by any means, please come forward, let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.